uh, mixed income housing. This is something that some of us debated. I don't know what the right conclusion is, but I raised it in the report. The, the stated goal is mixed income housing. Most of us would probably agree that's a good goal, much better than having neighborhoods that are segregated by income or race or any other uh, basis. Um, if we want to create mixed income, income housing in these three neighborhoods, then we have to actually build different kinds of housing. Because as of right now, mixed income housing does not exist there. And that raises a really interesting philosophical question. Uh, when right now the intervention has been heavily about subsidized housing for people who, who you know, can only afford subsidized housing, uh, whether, you know, how you actually would go about creating genuinely mixed, uh, you know, without sparking still greater fears of high displacing redevelopment. Hello and welcome to another edition of TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council. From deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. Last month's fight night helped raise more than $1.7 million for Trek community investors, which joins forces with underserved communities throughout the DFW area to invest in the disinvested, energize neighborhoods, and change lives. We do that through access to flexible capital and real estate expertise, as well as an unwavering commitment to build a lasting impact in the communities we serve. One of the ways we've sought to do that is through the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development, or DCED. This initiative started in 2019 with a $6 million investment from J.P. Morgan Chase to create and implement an equitable development plan for three Dallas neighborhoods considered most vulnerable to rapid economic transition. They are the bottom, West Dallas Census Tract 205, and the Forest District. The DCED was formed in partnership with Dallas College, Lift Fund, and community organizations throughout the three neighborhoods, but the plan itself came from feedback we received from numerous surveys and meetings with residents during the Community-Driven Growth Initiative in 2018. The DCED focuses on equitable real estate development and housing, job expansion and wealth creation, and community ownership and leadership opportunities. In late August, we hosted a roundtable discussion with our partners to discuss the state of the DCED, highlighting the initiative's triumphs and challenges from the last two years. It was led by Colm Clark, who is director of the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative and author of two white papers about the DCED's progress. You'll hear that discussion in just a bit. A quick reminder before we get started, please subscribe to the show if you haven't already done so, and follow us on social media for the latest news and updates from around the organization. We've linked to our podcast platforms and social media handles, the two DCED white papers, and recording of last year's DCED discussion in the show notes. You can also learn more about the DCED and Trek Community Investors at trekcommunityinvestors.org. Now, here's our roundtable discussion on year two of the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development, right here on TrackCast. So glad everyone could join us today. I'm Kim Butler, I'm chair of the Real Estate Council. And um, most of you know, but maybe not some, that um, the Real Estate Council is virtual um, estate professionals, about 2,000 and about 625 member companies. And we have three missions and they are leadership development, public policy, and community investment. Um, Trek community investors, we sometimes refer to the Real Estate Council as Trek, and Trek community investors 
uh, is the philanthropic arm of the Real Estate Council. And we have been investing in communities for over 25 years, uh, empowering residents in low and moderate income communities. Um, we're excited today to discuss the second year of the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development. And this is a program that is generously funded uh, through a $6 million grant from J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan Chase has a long history, a long history of supporting mission-driven nonprofits across the country. And we wanna thank you for your investment in our city of Dallas. Um, I'd like to take a moment to uh, recognize, but I'm not sure he's here yet, is uh, Honorable Adam Badlazui. And then I know that the Honorable Karen Mendelson's joining us virtually, uh, so welcome. And we also want to thank financial supporters, city staff, and everybody who uh, is spending your time with us today. If you're joining us virtually, a couple of housekeeping items. We hope that you will keep your camera turned off and your speaker mute, or muted until the roundtable discussion part. Uh, we have a program, and at that part, if you have questions or comments, you can put those in the chat, or you can simply raise your hand. Um, but we'd love for everybody, whether you're with us virtually or in person, to be able to participate today. Now, to begin today's program, we want to thank J.P. Morgan Chase again and introduce Michelle Thomas. So thank you all so uh, very much, Michelle Thomas. I am uh, executive director and lead our philanthropic investments across Texas and Oklahoma. I am absolutely thrilled uh, to be here today. Um, so first of all, at J.P. Morgan Chase, we you know, do a lot of things well, but we clearly understand what economic opportunity looks like, and it is deeply rooted in the conditions in which we're seeing in many of the low to moderate income neighborhoods. Yet we also know that many neighborhoods, including the Forest District, the Bottom, West Dallas, Census Tract 205, face persistent challenges, including uh, poverty, blight, and a lack of uh, investments in the southern part of Dallas. And residents in these neighborhoods do not have the same access to affordable housing, small business, capital, technical assistance, job training as a counterpoints uh, in other cities across the city. And this is a reality that far too many places and far too many people are experiencing across the country. And we know also well that it's, it's just not okay. And if you are comfortable in knowing that, then shame on you. Um, and so J.P. Morgan Chase is committed uh, to um, helping and we believe in our corporate responsibility to help communities and particularly the communities in which we serve, live and work. And we also understand that meaningful change can come about when government, business and community all come together. And so in 2019, we awarded Trek Community Investors a $6 million investment to create and fund the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development with partners like Lift Fund and Dallas College. We also know that there was a competitive application process. It was not easy, it was nationwide, and to be able to secure the largest investment at that time, $6 million in our city, I think was incredibly huge, and I could not be proud of partnering with the Real Estate Council. Uh, their combined resources actually uniquely positioned them to tackle many of these multiple challenges that we see in neighborhoods. And I can say that because I am from the southern part of Dallas. I grew up in Oak Cliff and I have seen communities gentrifying 
And what does that mean? What does anti-displacement feel like? It is real. And so to be able to see them go into communities and know the residents is incredibly rewarding. And so I could not be more proud um, to partner with uh, the Real Estate Council on all of the services that they are providing throughout this collaborative. So I believe, and I think all of you all would agree, that together we are developing locally driven solutions that create inclusive growth for everyone, brown people, for black people, for Latinx people, for gay people, for anyone. We all deserve to be able to live in this wonderful city. And so whether you're living in the Forest District or whether you're living in the bottom or whether you're living in West Dallas Census Track 205, uh, we wanna ensure that these residents and communities are never left behind. And so now, I turn it over to my good friend, Felicia Pearson, who I get to partner with all the time of the Real Estate Council. Thanks, Michelle. Celestia, can everyone hear everyone on, online clearly? Are we okay? Okay. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, great. Because I could start over if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I hope they heard that. So thank you, Michelle. Thank you and JP Morgan Chase for your advocacy for all of our neighborhoods whether they are above or below I-30. Thank you, Cullum, and the George uh, W. Bush Institute for hosting this important discussion. I see many familiar faces uh, in, in the room, uh, and, and I see some names online that I know. Uh, community partners, financial partners, uh, council members, and city staff that are here in person or with us virtually. Uh, Heather, uh, David, we uh, thank you for being here. You've been with us every step of the way for this program. Uh, community partners, you've been, uh, and, and by the way, thank you for your service. Uh, community partners, you've been at this work for a very long time. You have and you are teaching us about running the long race or as someone that I, that I really admired, Nipsey Hussle, I would say it's a marathon. <laughs> Celestia, thank you for your hard work in pulling this event together. This, this has taken quite a while, and I thank you for that. So most of you are familiar with Trek Community Investors, but there are many, there are probably some people online that are not. So I just want to tell you a little bit about our organization. Trek Community Investors was created in 2020. It's the merger of our lending and education arm, uh, which was Trek Community Fund, uh, which is a Department, a Department of Treasury Certified Community Development Financial Institution, or a CDFI, merged with the Trek Foundation. We've been working with nonprofits to serve underserved communities for over 25 years. We provide real estate loans, grants, educational programs, and professional services, focusing on low to moderate income communities. So let's tell you a little bit again, what we've been doing over the last few years. So as a collaboration, and you're gonna hear collaboration a lot today, uh, as a collaboration and with uh, a holistic approach with community organizations who provide the real estate, with uh, members of the Real Estate Council who, buy, who, buy, who provide the human capital and the real estate expertise, and Trek Community Investors uh, provides the financial capital. We are committed to transforming communities block by block. So just a few examples of some recent collaborations. And I wanna encourage you to visit these communities and to speak with the community partners, residents, as well as Trek members uh, to learn more about the impact of these projects. The Cornerstone Laundromat 
This is the first laundromat in over, is it 10 years, Pastor Chris? In over 30 years in this community. Uh, Pastor Chris, as well as uh, Donald Wesson, uh, have told us that the laundromat is not only a place for people to wash and dry their clothes, it's also a place for residents to come together to get to know one another. Also a place where kids can come and do their homework in a safe space. The South Point Community Market, and I will tell you, there are many people that said it wouldn't work. Well, it is. It is a mission-driven market. The store provides food staples and everyday items at an affordable price for local residents. The store carries food from neighborhood businesses and is creating jobs. Please drop by that market, the South Point Community Market, and make sure you speak to uh, Mr. Perry and tell him we said tell him we said hello, and make sure you just drop by and, and pick up some items. The MLK Food Park, located on an empty lot last year, an empty weeded lot on MLK Boulevard. The location, let me tell you where it was located. Located across from a liquor store. Also next to an apartment known for drug activity. For four weekends, that lot was transformed into a community gathering space that featured neighborhood-based businesses. Over 5,000 people, including local, uh, local residents, visitors from Dallas, Collin, as well as Tarrant counties and families attended. I can't tell you how many people came up to us and said, thank you for having a space where people could come together and just have a good time and support small businesses. One of the businesses at the food park has provided desserts for today. Products from Ms. Shanae Wise, her business is called Catering Done Wisely. Those, her products are carried at South Point Community Market. And Trek Community Investors, we also focus on housing, workforce, as well as affordable housing. We provide loan capital and technical assistance to our clients to address the housing challenges here in the city of Dallas. So, beginning in 2018, for one year, as part of Collaborative, we met with residents in three Dallas neighborhoods, the bottom, West Dallas Census Track 205, and the Forest District to learn what was needed in each of those communities. We didn't assume, we listened. As a result of this engagement, the community-driven growth equitable development plan was created. As a result of that plan, and Michelle was there when the residents told us that they needed more than just a plan. But J.P. Morgan Chase saw to it that we were awarded a $6 million investment for the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development to address the needs of the community. And this was designed to be a three-year program. So to tell you about the members of the collaborative, as Trek Community Investors, we focus on access to capital for affordable and workforce housing, minor home repairs for residents that want to stay in there in their community, <clears throat> providing the community partners professional real estate capacity through real estate teams made up of Trek members and project managers, and real estate educational training, again, uh, taught by Trek members. Dallas College, which campuses located near each of these three communities, offer small business services as well as workforce training. LIFON offers small business lending as well as technical assistance. So we've been talking about our community partners. These are our community partners. 
Builders of Hope in West Dallas Census Track 205 in the bottom, Golden Seeds. And in the Forest District, we have Forest Ford. Elizabeth is here. Cornerstone Baptist Church, perhaps Pastor Chris is here. St. Phillips, we have, we have the whole crew here. Uh, Miss Libby and Pastor Parker are here uh, representing Golden Seeds. And Stephanie is here representing Builders of Hope. So thank you all for being partners over the last three years. So to learn about DCED, year two, the successes as well as challenges, we'll now hear from an objective voice, our local program evaluator, Colin Clark. A friendly objective voice. <laughs> <laughs> so not only is Colin a national thought leader in the space of economic policy and tying that to neighborhood revitalization as well as economic development in low to moderate income communities, Cullen was recently featured on one of my favorite podcasts, Freakonomics. Cullen, you've made it. Now, seriously, I, I encourage you to read Cullen's white papers on the subject. Uh, I, I believe they're required reading. Cullen, we are all ears. Thank you so much, Felicia. Well, first of all, first order of business is, I think, on behalf of all my colleagues here to say welcome, everyone, to the George W. Bush Presidential Center. It's great to have you here, and it's great to have this event and this kind of event here. And we're really thrilled to have you. We're honored by the presence of our elected officials if they're out there. Uh, and, uh, and, and what most certainly is here in the room and virtually, which is a, a remarkable group of great Dallas leaders all united around uh, some very hard and important work. So thanks for everything that you, uh, that you do. Uh, so just very quick introduction of me and a couple and a handful of other, other folks. So I'm an economist. I have the honor of leading our domestic economic policy work here at the, uh, at the Bush Institute. Uh, my work focuses on the challenge of creating prosperous, inclusive, high opportunity places, cities, towns, and neighborhoods aligns very, very well with what all of us here are trying to do. Uh, so it's really an honor to be part of this. I want to introduce my colleague, David Kramer, over here, uh, who has joined not so long ago and is just is about to take on the role of being the executive director of the Bush Institute. So, so uh, one of my bosses and uh, David is relatively new to Dallas, but is a great thinker and a frequent speaker on uh, U.S. foreign policy and a lot of big uh, policy issues. And I expect that you, you, you will all get to know David as a, a prominent policy thinker and uh, thought leader in this community. Uh, and also, so uh, I had the, uh, thanks to Linda Trek, uh, the, I've had the privilege of being what's called a local evaluator uh, for the program, uh, but I most certainly could not and have not done that alone. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with a really wonderful team of uh, particularly SMU colleagues, so I want to recognize uh, two SMU PhD students over here, uh, Duwani Kapalawage, <coughs> and that's made not totally done justice, and William Cunningham, who are both PhD students and have been deep involved in the data and continue to be deeply involved in the uh, research that will support the third and final uh, report on the uh, program. Celestia has been a very important voice in that team as well. So, so thanks to everyone. And then out there in cyberspace someplace is uh, Dr. Lynn Stokes, that's a valued SMU colleague, a professor of statistics, who's also been a really um, uh, important advisor to this whole effort. So about the evaluation. Um, so um, I think what really gets me excited about this, got me involved, is that uh, the, this, the Pro Neighborhoods Initiative is not just corporate philanthropy, correct me if I'm wrong, Michelle, as profound and gen profoundly generous as it is as philanthropy. It is a set of pilot projects 
from which my understanding is we're, we are meant to learn something and to improve and iterate over time. Uh, and that is why I, I kind of in concert with Celestia and Felicia and team came up with the idea of this, this event that we get things out on the table, that we talk about what we are learning and that we, that we continue that, that process of figuring out what we are learning from it over time. Um, what is, uh, uh, so, so one thing I wanna say about this program is not only is it intended to produce learning, but on top of that, I think that, that all of the partners, Trek, CI, and, and the rest uh, have been um, very ambitious in doing some very innovative things. Uh, and when you do innovative things, it's, it's risky. You know, we don't know how it's exactly going to work out. But, it, but, but I think that these interventions are, are innovative in how they think about, for example, the, the financial stack that actually brings affordable housing into being. They're um, innovative in how in thinking and continue to innovate and in how to think about community land trusts and bringing that, that instrument to Dallas. Creative at the Dallas college level in, where's Kristen? In thinking about, and there, Kristen, in uh, thinking about how to actually, uh, you know, bring um, the, the process of helping people become successful entrepreneurs into the community college setting. It's already been there, but I think a lot of fresh thought has gone into, into doing this. So, you know, these are innovations and uh, as innovations, they're also experiments and we all kind of need to learn something from how they're working out. So here's what we're gonna do. I mean, I have just four slides. I'm gonna hit them fast, okay? Um, because the objective here is to get people speaking. This is not a deal with uh, everyone here as an audience and a handful of us are presenters. Uh, this is literally meant to be uh, uh, a moderated discussion. After I say a few, after you slides, say a few things that are basic, basically a very brief overview from the report that's in front of you. Um, I will moderate a discussion where everyone is a speaker if they wish to be, but the central question throughout is, what are we learning from these efforts that we are engaged in and how can we improve on it and get the results that we all want to get in Southern Dallas? Um, so that's, that's the plan. And the last thing to say is when we do start into this moderated conversation, Celestia, at my insistence, is going to be ruthless about the time uh, because we know we could spend many, many hours, days, weeks talking about these hard issues and how to, how to improve on them. And we're going to make our way through a variety of content. Okay, so that's where we are. So let's... Uh, go into uh, the, the slides here, Celestia. Um, there was a first report that came out a little over a year ago. Won't revisit it much, but just to sort of remind everyone what we're talking about, Southern Dallas uh, as a region conventionally defined has roughly 600,000 people in it, roughly 80% of them black or Hispanic. Uh, it's a vast area, bigger than the bigger physically than the city of Atlanta and with easily more people than the whole city of Washington or Seattle or San Francisco. Um, and an area that has seen very little job growth, very little new housing, and a great deal of, of uh, economic distress, as Michelle said. Uh, it is very much in need of, um, of uh, interventions like what is, is, is being done here. So, um, so turning to the, the second report, um, so what I'd like to highlight just in this slightly busy slide is, um, well, barriers to equitable development in these neighborhoods and by extension neighborhoods like them throughout our city and other cities, uh, but also barriers that specifically make it hard to implement these interventions to be, to be frank. Um, so on the left side, um, so parts of the intervention involved, uh, as you all know, Dallas College and Trek leading what are essentially training and education related programs for adults to help them uh, with jobs, being an entrepreneur, being a real estate professional, uh, and also lift, lift fund uh, program to make uh, micro-sized uh, business loans 
So uh, we did, our team did kind of a deep dive into the, into the actual numbers on the neighborhoods using census data and other data. And some of the, some of the things that I think just maybe might get people thinking a little bit. 22% of the people in these neighborhoods do not have access to a car. That's very difficult for getting even to a track training program, among other things, uh, in, in Dallas. 34% uh, of households don't have a computer. 40% don't have internet access. When COVID meant that uh, certain programs had to go online, 40% of the people in those neighborhoods could not possibly participate online. Uh, Childcare, we don't have good data. The government doesn't do a good job of asking about that. But anecdotally, we see overwhelming evidence that that's a major impediment to people participating in upward mobility oriented programs like what we're talking about. 31% uh, uh, of, of the adult individuals over 25 uh, do not have a high school diploma. We are, those are gazillion issues historically that have probably led to that outcome, but the, uh, but the net result is um, a, a lot of the people are, you know, it's a challenge to actually fully connect them with everything that we're trying to achieve here. Um, uh, participation rates is something we looked at pretty closely. Um, uh, Dallas College, I actually went into this, I'll be honest, I thought we would find given the, the um, uh, basically the underinvestment and deprivation of these neighborhoods that actually participation in Dallas, both for credit and not for credit programs would be uh, kind of low. That actually turned out to be uh, not the case. It's actually pretty average for the county, which is great. However, there's clearly a challenge with completion with people actually, you know, earning an associate degree or a, a certification. Um, small business loans, uh, Lyft Fund only has made a pretty small number of loans, so we can't generalize too much, but we do have data from the Small Business Administration. SBA loans, about normal for, uh, for uh, Dallas County, in actually above in two of the districts, although the Forest District really didn't have any SBA loans over the period we looked at. So kind of varies. Barriers to, to addressing housing supply and affordability challenges, lots of them. Uh, there wasn't space to list them all, but very old, very outdated housing stock for a really large percentage of the people living in these neighborhoods. That's really important, among other things, because as I think everyone here knows, the single greatest source of affordable housing of the future is the naturally occurring kind, the kind that's already there. Um, the kind that's already there is is got a lot of a lot of problems in these neighborhoods. Very low home ownership rate, particularly in the forest district. That's important, partly as we all know, because because no home ownership means major impediment to generational wealth creation. But it's not just that. Uh, very low home ownership is also one of the most powerful predictors of displacement. Um, so uh, you know, ownership is one of the best things you can do to slow displacement. Uh, physical and environmental barriers, as various people in the room have learned, there are issues of being in floodplains in some of the neighborhoods. There's issues of of old dry cleaners and other things that have created brownfield sites that make it hard to get the legal clearance to, to build. Very complex regulatory uh, environment, certainly a complex environment to try to create the capital stack that can create housing for, for people who are at say 30 or 40% of AMI, very, very hard here and everywhere. And on top of that, really fast, fast rising land prices, in fact, faster in the focused neighborhoods, even than Southern Dallas as a whole or the city as a whole. Um, the result of all these things, we've had very low rates of new housing development in these, um, in these neighborhoods. Uh, and in fact, 2015 and 19, zero multifamily units across all of the neighborhoods. Can we go for it? Okay, so I'm gonna say a little bit about each of the interventions really quickly, and then we'll get the moderated discussion going. Okay, on housing. So we do, we do three things in the report, basically. One is we do kind of a deep dive into the neighborhoods. I've just been speaking to that. Secondly, uh, we kind of review what's happened so far, just report the facts and analyze it a little bit. 
Uh, and third, we draw some early takeaways, recognizing that our kind of final takeaways would be in the third report, not now. Uh, so uh, I'm not going to say much about the review of where things are. I refer you to the report. I'll say a little bit more about the takeaways, but housing. So as we speak, uh, Trek Community Investors has approved its first loan. Uh, as of now, no units under construction yet, but hopefully uh, soon. There is no doubt that COVID plus the very high degree of complexity of executing in this environment, plus some execution challenges uh, have, have created some delays. It is yet nonetheless still happening. Uh, and uh, as I note in the second, that actually that second line has already been uh, rendered obsolete by events because this new uh, loan. Uh, so actually I would say uh, updating the numbers, there is a line of sight to about 70 units. The original intention was 200. Uh, but 70 is a pretty good, pretty good number, uh, which would take up actually about $2 million out of the $2.6 million allocated as part of the J.P. Morgan grant. Uh, so, you know, on a per unit basis, it's turned out to take about twice as many dollars per unit as originally planned. Uh, not time to review all the many, many the factors that have driven up the cost of creating affordable housing in our country. Um, uh, I, I would argue that, that Trek CI has adapted very, very well to this complex environment through expanding the geographic scope of the intervention, getting JP Morgan approved that, thank you, uh, through uh, expanding actually the list of entities that can borrow uh, to develop uh, and uh, some other specific changes such as in the minor home rep uh, repair program. Um, uh, one other thing, it was originally the intention of the, of the plan to, um, of the partners to create one or more community land trusts, possibly different ones in different neighborhoods. Uh, that's gone more slowly than we had all hoped, given that the, the city council approved an ordinance for creating these for the first time. I think that everyone involved, including me and probably several people around the table, uh, upon studying the matter, really did come to understand the, the organizational complexity and the actual cost of operating one community land trust, which is why the overwhelming majority of cities that have them have one, not more. Uh, and now I think in terms of adaptation, uh, Trek CI is studying the matter closely and actually considering what really would be quite an innovative model, a kind of hub and spoke, I made up that term, that may not be the term of art, uh, which is actually being done in, in, in a form in Baltimore that I don't think I've studied very closely yet, but essentially where you could have one sort of um, hub organization providing services to multiple legal entities where the legal entities might be neighborhood specific. Uh, that arguably is an extremely innovative way to address uh, some of the challenges that are out there in community land trust land. Um, so uh, some early uh, takeaways in all this. And, and when I say all these, I want to make a really clear caveat. These are my honest assessment of where we are. Uh, I, I, when I point to anything that maybe you could say is, uh, is saying that we have something to learn from this experience, it is not in any way to detract from the Herculean, phenomenal efforts on the part of a lot of people in the room to bring affordable housing into being in this, these very challenging circumstances, okay? So important, really important caveat. A lot of smart people have been working really, really hard at this. Um, the experience of bringing, the importance of bringing experience and know-how to the table. Um, uh, I argue in the report that uh, in general, you're trying to build at scale, build a bunch of units. You know, we have a number of folks in Dallas that built a whole lot of housing before uh, the organizations engaged here, whereas James certainly uh, Builders of Hope has. I think that for some of the other organizations involved, it's kind of a new thing. Everyone's trying to stretch here and learn. I, I, I think that we could learn from this the benefits of, let's say, something closer to uh, 
nonprofit slash for-profit partnerships to bring some of the experienced players to the table. And in fact, to, to, to some degree, that's actually happened as the process has run along. Um, mixed income housing. This is something that some of us debated. I don't know what the right conclusion is, but I raised it in the report. The, the stated goal is mixed income housing. Most of us would probably agree that's a good goal, much better than having neighborhoods that are segregated by income or race or any other uh, basis. Um, if we want to create mixed income, income housing in these three neighborhoods, then we have to actually build different kinds of housing. Because as of right now, mixed income housing does not exist there. And that raises a really interesting philosophical question. Uh, when right now the intervention has been heavily about subsidized housing for people who, who you know, can only afford subsidized housing, uh, whether, you know, how you actually would go about creating genuinely mixed, uh, you know, without sparking still greater fears of high displacing redevelopment. Hard, hard question. Uh, leveraging additional capital sources. It's gotten more expensive to build housing. How do you actually assemble all the funding required to make it happen? Home ownership, how do we get more of it? Um, uh, I would argue, particularly in the context of the forest district with extremely low home ownership rates by the standards of our city and our nation, uh, that uh, that is a, a major question that I think we haven't fully you know, tackled here. And I, I think I've already said enough about community land trust. Let's go to the next one. Small business lending and uh, job and entrepreneurship training. I've kind of combined those two elements in one slide because actually there's kind of similar takeaways. What is the status as of right now? Lift Fund has, as of early 2022, I haven't heard any update on this, closed three loans totaling about $85,000, I forgot the dollar sign, uh, out of an allocated 1 million, okay? Um, so three small businesses. By the way, when speaking of small businesses, I forgot to mention before, we should congratulate Dallas for creating one. Well done. Um, so there are small, there are small businesses absolutely getting going, getting going uh, throughout Southern Dallas, and uh, and and you know, bravo for all of the ones that have gotten kind of off the ground. Uh, in this case, there have been three loans. Um, Dallas College programs. There have been a, a, a great deal of effort, both online and in person, to um, invite people in the neighborhoods and to learning about the programs that are that are that this that the intervention makes available. Um, uh, quite a few have learned about it. As of right now, the ones who have earned certification through Dallas College programs, I believe, at least as of early 2022, it was in the single digits. Um, so, you know, happening, probably a little frustrating in terms of where the total numbers are, despite, again, Herculean uh, efforts. Um, and the Trek real estate programs, as of early, I think in 2021, there were 71 participants, which is a pretty considerable number. And, uh, you know, I think we'll report, report back in the third report about kind of what's come of that. Some takeaways. Um, all of the interviews we did clearly suggested uh, a challenge in generating leads. Okay? It's just hard work to actually line up the person, get the person to understand, you know, to explain the, op the opportunity that's in front of them, recruit them into the program. Um, so just how to actually do it, I think, is an open, uh, open question. Um, borrower qualifications. A lot of very small businesses that uh, are just plain smaller than Lyft Fund is typically used to lending to. That's, that's, that's the current reality, a little bit of a mismatch between uh, sort of what was intended and the businesses that are really there. Similarly, arguably something of a mismatch between the actual readiness of people in some cases for specific programs that are being made available to them and their readiness to engage in those programs. Um, uh, just how interested are people in these particular programs? There is no question I think that uh, Trek and partners did an amazing job of listening a lot up front about what people, what's on their mind, what do they aspire to for their neighborhoods. But, you know, do, did we fully know or do we yet fully know 
what kind of programs they really would value a lot. I would say that's a question mark. Uh, and then just literally internet access, physical access, can they get to the program? Can they participate? Uh, one insight, uh, I would say this was a quote from, from one uh, participant. Uh, we always say money is the issue. Then money comes along and we realize money isn't the only issue. There are a lot of challenges here. Let's go on. Last slide for me. Um, so some early takeaways. So I, I call these hypotheses. This is not a firm conclusion. This is kind of thinking maybe this is the case and invite discussion on it. Um, uh, one is uh, I think that, that this, if we want to reflect on this whole intervention, we need to think a little bit about the complexity of what has been undertaken. Three neighborhoods times a lot of organizations times multiple different areas that we're trying to influence. Um, even without COVID, that would have been a very, you know, a challenging thing. A lot of people have risen to the occasion. It is clearly difficult. Uh, we all knew it was difficult. Didn't get into this work because it was easier. Um, uh, a uh, second point is um, about the role of the neighborhood community organizations, of which there are five and all represented in the room. Uh, I think we can all clearly say after two and a half years of this, that the, that the community neighborhoods are utterly essential to to this having any hope of working. Um, that um, before we say anything else, you can't, can't accomplish anything without earning the trust and confidence and wish to participate of the people who live in the neighborhoods that you're trying to help. Um, uh, and clearly um, uh, all five neighborhood organizations are trusted partners in the community, rooted in the community and vital anchor institutions. So we've certainly learned it's really, really important. And I would certainly say to all the folks who ever Come to JP Morgan again in the future. Be sure you have organizations like that involved because they are so important. Uh, at the same time, I think that uh, every single one of the organizations has had to stretch to try to accomplish what they've all been trying to, what all of you all have been trying to accomplish. And that's probably a healthy thing. But there is the question of uh, at some point, does the, you know, particularly given the tight timetable, does the uh, effort in a sense ask so much on so many fronts? I, I just pose that as a question, not a, not a strong conclusion. Um, uh, one other, another thing that may have been a little bit of a debate between me and some of the folks in the room <coughs> is about the potential limits of highly geographically targeted um, place-based interventions. Um, and here would be my basic hypothesis that I want to throw out. And that is that um, organizations such as all the ones represented in the room that are deeply rooted in a very specific place clearly play a vital role. Sometimes, at the same time, that and, okay, um, uh, the kinds of specific domain expertise that maybe a bank can bring to bear, a home building company can bring to bear, necessarily is in, is in the hands of organizations that operate at wider geographic scale. Uh, and the question is how you bring them in and bring that expertise to bear so that we don't say essentially all the way, all the pressure, all the way, all the responsibilities in the hands of the, the one organization right there in the community that's being asked to assent do everything. Uh, however, some very clear, undeniable benefits. Everyone that I spoke to clearly agrees there's been tremendous uh, energy created by this whole um, effort, um, tremendous momentum. Everyone involved, I think, has learned a lot, certainly including me, but I'll bet you that includes just about everyone in the room has been involved. Um, a lot of relationships have been built. Uh, I think everyone agrees that a lot of good will carry on after the last 
JP Morgan dollar has been spent. And in that sense, it's been very catalytic as intended. Uh, also, as uh, my colleagues over there from SMU can agree, we have some early evidence, which we'll report back on next year, um, uh, that actually the focused neighborhoods have outperformed some of the most similar neighborhoods to them in Dallas on some important metrics over the last year. So early evidence uh, suggests maybe we're on a, um, you know, on a, uh, a good path. Let's take a quick break so I can tell you about our next Bank of Texas Speaker Series event, and it's one of our most popular events of the year. Join us Wednesday, November 9th at the Hilton Anatole as Mark Gibson of JLL Capital Markets Americas gives his annual capital markets update. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss these insights. Tickets will be available soon on recouncil.com, so save the date and make plans to be with us. Again, that's Wednesday, November 9th at the Hilton Anatole. Special thanks to Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, and the Dallas Morning News for their support and sponsorship of Speaker Series. Now, let's get back to the show. So, I'm going to stop there. As I said, promised a moderated discussion, and I want to pose one start, first question to the group. We're going to start with housing. Okay, we'll cover other topics here. First question to the group, and I'm really I'm just going to invite people to jump in. Okay, you figure out the times yeah. and then that. Then we'll Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. So, so that I understand, you're going to toss yeah. questions I'm gonna, to us. I'm going to invite you to reflect on what we've been learning, you and everyone to reflect on what we've been learning from this. And therefore, that would be the time when we have the actions to some of the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just, just it, you, know, you can always share stuff with me one on one later, but I mean, for purposes of all of us learning from this, um, you know, I've thrown out some deliberately provocative things to get people thinking. And um, so first question is on the, on the affordable housing front, what are we learning from this experience about how we can successfully bring into being new units, preserve and improve the quality of existing ones and address some of these housing crises that our neighborhoods face? Who is willing to go first? Uh, I'll, I'll go first. <laughs> Thank you, <buddy. laughs> So, um, you know, a lot of my work that I do with the city of Dallas is often evaluated on the basis of housing production. How many units have we produced? How many units have we produced? How many units have we produced? But too often what is forgotten in that request, in that um, performance factor is what does it take to produce a unit, right? Um, and in any one of these communities that we're looking at, it's, it's different factors, right? So when I'm talking to Pastor Parker and, and Libby Lee, the conversations are around floodplains, right? What's the state of the floodplain? How, do, how high do we have to lift the, the, the land out of the floodplain in order to, 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 to build on? Um, when I'm talking to um, James in West Dallas, it's what's the state of the dirt? Um, how deep do we have to go? Because the 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 soil that that they're building on used to be a landfill, and it can't support the structure, right? So so now we got to figure out okay, how do we tackle that issue, right? In in St. Phillips, it's about crime, and it's 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 about these other factors. So it's all these tangential issues that we're tackling. And when you take a step back to look at, okay, how do we address um, housing development? It really comes down to neighborhood revitalization, 
right? We've got to uplift the neighborhood, addressing all of these different factors as part of the housing discussion. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Um, so I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, it's more than just access to capital, right? That's a big piece, but it's not the only piece. And what we've sort of experienced is, you know, just a need for capacity building, right? I think that is a real need for nonprofits. Um, you know, I think as far as having the ability to do is there, but the know-how is sort of missing, right? And so throughout this process, of course, we've been able to increase our capacity, bring on Stephanie Champion, who's leading our community development and policy work. Um, but I think that's that's really the big piece is that technical assistance. Um, you know, we've learned a lot from a lot of the Shrek partners who came alongside of us, and it was our first multifamily development. So quite different than a single family, actually a lot different. Sure, I got a few more gray areas from the multifamily side. Um, so it's a lot different. Um, it requires an additional level of expertise. But I think what what we've learned is, you know, in order to become more efficient, you have to have that expertise in place. And you have to think about just processes throughout. Um, it's sort of just the, the technical sophistication that really comes from the private sector that you really don't see on the non side. So we've been able to do that and become more efficient, ramp up our production, um, and, and really be a stronger uh, leader in affordable housing. But you know, access to capital is is it's a it's a major factor, but it's not the only factor uh, that we that we come up against. Uh, I like the point that you mentioned about you know how do you bring in those expertise, right? Um, knowing that the community groups have relationships, all of these different things, but we, we have to see it in a sense of, you know, partnerships on the private side, right? And the reason why we've been able to increase our capacity so quick is our partnership with Green Lake Ventures, mm -hmm. uh, right? A private developer um, has allowed us to get into spaces and opportunities that we normally wouldn't even have the balance sheet to get into. <clears throat> Um, and so I think this recurrent thing that we can all agree with in this room is that the way to solve some of these solutions, all of the solutions, is partnership, right? Nonprofits have to partner with, you know, for-profits. For-profits have to, you know, increase their patience and work with the city. I love to be part, but, but we all know. Um, so it, it requires this public, nonprofit, private partnership that I don't think we've seen a lot in Dallas. Um, but I think this this program has really amplified the need for that. Right. I, I should say real fast that uh, to everyone out there in uh, Zoom land that uh, it works, you're not muted or anything, you can speak up if you'd like to. Um, the side of the room, but yes. I actually yeah. am um, a homeowner in South Dallas. And so I think the same would help me. Um, I think a, a, a housing development is really, really important. So South Fair CDC really was intricate in helping me, um, even pulling back to the person that Steve, uh, he, realtor, he was the person, he had a nonprofit, but he was a realtor. He 
He's like, hey, you want to go to South Dallas? I've been talking to him for years. And so then he pointed me to South, South Fair. South Fair then pointed me to a mortgage company and said, hey, there's a program with the city. Then, then there was money that came from the city. You know, hey, I want a black builder. Here's a black builder. So there were so many different people there. Um, in South Fair, they concentrate on low-income to moderate housing. I don't know how many. I mean, we probably have other organizations in South Dallas. I'm not going to mention them all. But I just know what they're targeting in that. And then they have so many partners. Everybody in my neighborhood that purchased was offered the same, pretty much the same thing. And I don't really, I don't really necessarily see that in South Dallas. I'm not saying it's not there. But I know that's what helped me to purchase with a, as a single parent with three children. So I, I think somebody said partnership. That's the only thing that took us in there. And I'll be honest, the, the biggest stop was the city. Um, I ended up being like, I had to tap on the city manager's door to kind of get the program pushed through. But I was able to do that. But um, those were the things that really helped us to get, we would not be on the corner of Malcolm X and Park Row if it wasn't for all of those entities. Thank you for sharing your experience. Uh, the view from St. Phillips or Cornerstone? Yeah. I, I echo uh, James. Uh, if I had to press rewind on this uh, project, we, we did not, the five organizations did not uh, flood James <laughs> with uh, leveraging the expertise that he already had. So we're not, any of us are haven't been in the development business, but we could have sort of said, okay, we know what you're doing. Here's what we're trying to do over here. Let's leverage those partnerships. But it's not as like, it's not as though we have uh, experienced developers who are jumping, who are, who are coming at us to, to do this work. It sounds like you've had some success there, but uh, that's one aspect that we are, we've been limited. And, but at the same time, we're we're all five of us very cautious about not allowing things to get so far ahead of protecting the community, which is why we do the work that we do. Uh, so we, there's a delicate balance that we have to be observant of to make sure that we're not uh, creating something that gets so far out of control that it ends up adversely affecting the very same people we're trying to serve. Same thing, you know, we have just recently tapped into the expertise that James brings to the table. And so one thing that the collaborative helped us to do is to understand what partners we currently have at the table and how we can maximize those resources that are available. Mark? Organizational capacity. And <clears throat> bringing the city to the table in terms of being a partner in the process I mean, as it relates to the bottom. The feed's here, so I can't say all I'm say. <laughs> but seriously though, the challenges of, of building a home in a neighborhood that has been infrastructure-wise that's been neglected for 70 years, you just can't build a house and not deal with the major lack of infrastructure improvement from the floodplain to do you put a do you put can you put a should not can you can should you put a new house on a street that hadn't been with no sidewalk no light and no 
Um, it's just so the city has to be a partner at the table and not just someone, um, a partner that we work with individually. And so if I re rewind as, as Dr. Flowers said, I would rewind and say, city needs to be in the table from the beginning because each one of these neighborhoods, and I'm gonna speak for the bottom, I can't speak for anybody else. Each one of the neighborhoods, each for the bottom, the city is such a large landowner and controls so much of any development that may or potentially could take place that, and all the silos that I'm working with the city, not everybody I've ever worked with in the city has a heart for to do whatever and passionate, but we have to talk to 50 people to get one thing done. Now, I don't know if that's every city. All I know is, is Dallas and the bottom. So the city has to be a viable, integrated partner in the development work of housing in the bottom. And that, because when you talk about capacity, that means Libby Lee and Matthew White, Ron Carter, they have to, they got, they spend half their time dealing with cities. We ain't talking about DC either. <laughs> so that, those are my two. I think I can ask a question, but the lead, the lead, can you respond to that? I mean, just so we can understand Doc, the language. We have a very intimate relationship, <laughs> and I'm not trying to get into all of that. <laughs> so um, the one thing I will say is that um, from the day I arrived here in June of 2017, the bottom was identified as a priority for me to work on. And since then, we pumped three and a half million dollars into phase one infrastructure. That work has been completed. We generated another um, 4.4 million to pay for phase two infrastructure. That work is um, being designed now and will be moving forward um, as soon as the contract is, is, is executed. And we worked with the city council to um, rezone the neighborhood so that modern day homes can be constructed on the lots that are there. Um, we've also allocated um, bond funds to subsidize housing development um, in the area. And now I'm working with the council person for the area to um, stand up a housing preservation program specifically for the bottom uh, so that we can help the dilapidated homes that people are still living in uh, to, to, to be improved. So um, it, it is a challenge. It is a challenge. I mean, I, I fight with Dallas Water Utilities on a regular basis. Are you sure it's in the 100-year floodplain? Is there anything Charlie Pump is doing to pull this out? How much do we have to go? Can we look at designs? I mean, 
I'm doing all as much as I can, but I will tell everyone I am not Jesus. So don't expect that of me, right? And um, let's work through the challenges together. I'd like to um, follow up on that and just to ask, first of all, if anyone else would like to, given limited time here, uh, but please get back one-on-one if you ever want to talk about it. Um, but uh, thoughts about what we're learning from recent efforts on building new housing, but also to follow up on what Mr. Noguera said, uh, also repairing what is there, addressing homes that uh, with some TLC could be. Yes, Dr. Flowers. What we're we don't have anything to fight against tax ignition. That's already happening. And so one of the things that all five of the organizations would say is that has to be addressed. Otherwise, our work and everything and the, the resources in JP Morgan will end up in the long term doing the opposite of what we hope. And so when we talk about, and, and, and Linda and Trek has done some research around the country, no one seems to have figured this out, but it's going to take some innovation. Otherwise, we don't have a mechanism to make sure that the, the true objective is going to be something that is sustained over time. So you're, you're speaking of like some kind of mechanism to freeze assessed values, that sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. because, no, yeah. So in our zip code, it's uh, 121%. Wow. Is it uh, Karen Mendelson. Uh -huh. She has said, how important do you think it is to have a master plan for Southern Dallas development? What is the impact of racial and economic segregation on the development of quality of life for Southern Dallas? And thank you for talking about and working on these important issues. We have about three minutes. Would someone like to uh, one minute of that? Yes, please. I mean, because I think it, it really is important. So before the DCED was the uh, Grove, it was a planning before we applied for the so what we learned from that small census tract planning was there there was a huge need for a wider plan in West Dallas. And so we believe part of the hope that every neighborhood, especially those that are close to our urban core, we need a neighborhood plan. So, you know, we were able to utilize the smaller census tract plan, go out and raise money for a broader West Dallas plan. Stephanie could speak quickly to it from where we're, where we're at. We've had huge success, community priorities, and that is also leading into a broader displacement study. So, the second part of her question. Second question is, what is the impact of racial and economic segregation on the development and quality of life for Southern Dallas? That's a profound question. There's nothing that it does not impact. It has not impact. You can't have a neighborhood like the bottom next to downtown and the condition that it's in and say that that's not racially motivated. The impact on this long term is that even when we look at projects like this that are three years of investment, we can't undo, like Pastor Parker said, 70 years or 100 years of this investment in three. It's a start. 
And so having this, I think, of understanding is one important thing, but also understanding that all of these issues are related. So we're dealing with housing, but you also have to do infrastructure. You have to have safety and you need education. Now that it looks like a place people want to live, what's the economic impact? What's the quality of education? How do you get transportation back where it's accessible to the people in the neighborhood? But I think when you talk about the impact of it, it's long-term, it's systemic, and it's also going to take that same kind of solution building to address it. It's an extension of what Dr. Carter and what James have talked about. There's enough challenges inherent in commercial real estate development. And a lot of times in market environments, scale can, uh, can solve for some of that. But it seems like in the affordable housing space and what we're trying to talk about, scale often exacerbates those challenges. So the more we're trying to do, the more it magnifies the challenges that are already inherent in the process. And so there's this tension between capital sources and we need scale, right? Everybody wants and needs to scale, but the more we try to do, the more those, those problems yes. uh, get, get magnified. Sure. I want to ask one other quick housing question and then move on. Okay. And so this not maybe not to invite lots of comment, just more of a quick. So I, I did note that uh, Trek Community Investors is uh, uh, studying what could be a nationally significant, innovative approach to creating this hub and spoke community land trust concept. So I just want to get a quick sense. Um, that, that, do you are you all excited about that? I mean, the idea of trying to create something that has you know some one entity that is providing services to multiple potentially multiple. I mean, it's a complex thing to bring into being, but it also could be game changing. Thoughts? Absolutely, it's, it's, it could be a game changer. Had an occurrence not happened a year and a half before we start, we introduce the idea of a community land trust. A historic community near uh, the bottom was approached and the community somewhere was approached. It did not, and when they went to the community, it was already laid out. The city had not voted on it, but the, the neighborhood themselves became fearful of what that sounded like, it, what they understood it to be. It looked like it was a land grab. And so that information just, just moved all through the neighborhood. And when we bring up, that's the one state community land trust, you trying to take my land. You're not gonna, you're not, that's hard. We may have to wait 10 years to get that because people are fearful of it. We talked about that when we were, when we were going through the planning process because it had occurred and it was very difficult for communities. And so, understand. and so is that more of an education process? Because most great cities have community land trusts and they have several. And so my question to pastor is that I go to church over there on by the bottom and I, and, and I know where it's Thomas Avenue, I'm from McKinney where, where my parents used to live, family used to live. The neighborhood is going to gentrify. And every time I go across Trinity Bridge to get to my dad after 67, my hypothesis is they didn't build those highways for black folks and black and Latinx people. It looks better than the tollway. So it's like it's coming. Mm -hmm. And it looks like Bishop Arts District. Very few Latinx people over there. I mean, it is coming. And so how are we preparing our low to moderate income African-American people that live in the bottom to stay there? Just, I don't think it's going to look like that five years. It's the most picturistic view. 
of downtown Dallas. And when it floods, it looks like you're looking at Lake Michigan. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. Okay. I'm here for We don't flood. Really? No, I mean, I mean, I'm gonna, um, yeah, I hear you. But, oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm not for you, Pastor. No, I just. I mean, are you one, fearful of it? I am fearful of it happening. There's and no question. That's, that's been yeah. our passion for at least my time, about 25 years there now. Um, one, so we put a plan together. We got a neighborhood plan. Right. City of city it, that has been the guide for development. Yeah. Secondly, we partnered with a with a um, with a for-profit developer. It kind of went south, but we moved on and vice on it. I think I think we have neighborhoods like mine have been saying for 70 years. I followed a man who'd been there for 44 years. He said that they were coming. So for now, my 25, his 44, whatever that adds up to, they've been coming. Um, and that creates fear, and that creates um, a sense of a lack of control. Now that things are happening, all the investments that this city is making, that has brought, brought in the for-profit developer. I'm not even going to say for-profit developer. I'm, now I'm saying those that want to, the, the market is now taking on because Tax to Dr. Phillips' point, taxes have moved, assessment have moved from $1,500 to now 30 on the same piece in the last 10 years. Not, that's not over a 30 year thing. So, to, to V knows for us to build a, so yes, the fear is there. Secondly, um, I think. We have to just think holistically and, comp and, and comprehensively. The city has to be at the table. But also in Texas, the state has to, you have to go to the state to get some property tax relief mm -hmm. or abatement or hold. The city cannot do that on its own. And with the current, those in control of the state house, that's not a priority. It's just not a, it's not a policy priority. And so when folks said to me five years ago, Pastor Mark, you're gonna build $350,000 houses and, and we're gonna have to be gone. Well, I said, no, that's not what the OC is gonna be. But why is that? I'm gonna have to eat my words because we write up to $300,000 now just because of the cost of construction. Mm -hmm. So, so here's what I'm going to suggest as the moderator. I'm going to make a call and combine the next two uh, topics for 20 minutes, which I think kind of works because what, what we're talking about now, the challenge of inviting individuals in the neighborhoods to participate in certain Dallas college programs or participate in certain training programs that Trek has operated, or if they're running a business, to um, talk with Lyft Fund about making bar, making a uh, taking out a loan to, to grow their business. So in all three cases, as I noted in the slides, arguably there are similar challenges. Um, so what we're learning from this experience so far, could I ask Kristen or Dallas College representative to speak to that? Sure. Um, honestly, you know, throughout this program, the past three years, We've tried multiple attempts in, in various ways, and they've all iterated and they've all changed. But essentially, you have to meet individuals where they're at. And, and really, 
a lot of our outreach, while we have been successful in, in some pieces, we really need to get a better outreach, um, you know, option that allows us to get the people where they need to be. Um, and also start to include the education that's necessary to, to help and have a growth that's going forward. A lot of our attempts of what we're doing is changing a lot of things within Dallas College. And that, that is a great thing. Um, it's something that has needed to happen for years. And so now having that, um, it continues to iterate and some of the magical things that are happening now, I didn't even expect, but they're happening. And, and it's, quite, it's quite moving because you see all the hard work of what has happened um, and the challenges that exist. But having those components, having a place, a location for these, these individuals to engage and learn and have the proper resources and equipment is essential. Is Mr. Elizondo? Yeah. There we are, there we are. Can you speak to the left hand piece? Uh, yes. Um, so what we're running into uh, is, again, People that are not ready to open up the boxes for my structure properly. Um, again, <coughs> over and over. Uh, we've changed some things internally to try to rectify this. We actually have business advisors uh, from business center. Uh, it's a slow pace. We have two only, and they're both part time. So, again, it's the type of funds. And so uh, we're helping those that are not ready to prepare before they talk to a loan officer. Uh, but there's a variety of reasons why they're, they're not ready. And also, um, uh, interesting, we're talking about housing, right? And, uh, that became an issue. There was a business owner uh, who has a bakery. They own, they own a bakery. It was online, then they opened up a brick and mortar in Garland. And then we talked about the special program in South Dallas. They had an interest. It went down, they closed. Again, their feedback. Not a lot of houses, not who's gonna buy my product, who's gonna my services, you know, things like that started to like okay. So I guess I, I was with the business owner at the time. Um, just saw Derby and watching it, and to the eyes of the business owner. Right? So again, there's <coughs> multiple social issues here as well. That are affecting small businesses. Um, but uh, over there, answer or add no, that's a great start. I'd, I'd love to ask the um, representatives of the community, the neighborhoods, you know, you're, you're out there talking to people in the neighborhood and trying to connect them to opportunities. Whether it be I would ask you, and if you we know, could, Ms. Wise, yes, her experience. But the, well, yes, the reality yes. is that the majority of the businesses, ventures in America, fail yeah. within. A year, right? Very few of them make it past, you know, five years. So that's an additional challenge. But you're talking about people who primarily already started a business where they're doing something, right? And then all of a sudden we come along and we're saying, attend these seven classes or come here every week while they're trying to do everything that they're already trying to do. That 
that's good, but that doesn't really work for the person who's trying to take care of their family, do this business at the same time. So we have to think a little bit differently about the approach because they're already saddled with a lot and just trying to, to make life happen. So in order to get their attention and keep them motivated towards getting the help that you're trying to provide, they have to have some quick successes along the way. And those successes will, uh, will allow them to continue that momentum and stick with the, the process of the program. So it's not like we're, we're saying our, they're not ready. We know they're not ready, uh, but we're taking those who have the gumption to, to put a little bit of extra in there uh, and then we'll get them ready on the other side. We know they're not ready, but allow them to have some successes with what they're doing to even prove that, okay, this is not a good idea. This is a bad business idea. I need to drop that. I really should have been doing something else, but they need to learn that for themselves before trying to create the business plan and all of the components that go along. That's just my thought. We have an expert in here. Ms. Wise? So um, for me, a lot of people don't know, catering done wisely is 14 years old. So it was always a side gig for me. So when I was laid off in 2020, I just said, I'm not going to be able to do any more W2. I'm going to have to go ahead and do it myself. But I said, you have every single talent you need to support your family. You do not have to go work with anybody. So I just took that to heart. And, but I have multiple talents and businesses. I don't just do um, I have other businesses. And so when I thought about a brick and mortar, I didn't want to do that until I realized that at this point, there's no other way. And so um, I'm really, I'm a teacher. So I, I want to go back to educating on culinary. Um, I want to be able to offer South Dallas something that's lacking. You know, I mean, people want a healthy breakfast. People want something that they can take into their family that's, that's healthy. We don't have that. So I feel like I feel like if a person does want to offer something in South Dallas, it does need to be something that they don't have. I said they we don't have. Um, and and like I said, I have several different things that I do. I, do. I consult. I also teach. These would be all of the things that go on in, in that building that I have. And then I like to feed the neighborhood. We'll do some of that too. It'll be a nonprofit piece. It'll be a for-profit piece. It'll be a lot of different entities and I don't believe that I could do all of those things just saying I'm going to sell some food every day. It's not going to happen. I'm going to keep the doors open. It's not going to be money coming in. But with a nonprofit piece connected where I can go back to training for free and I can go back to saying these are the things that I offer. You can buy this. I can also cater. All of these different entities. Then we can afford to stay there. But like you said, we still, you know, it's, it's difficult financially right now. So we did three three loans in South Dallas for Park. And what we hear is a narrative all the time, especially on the foundation side, because we fund a lot of CDFIs, community development financial institutions. And what we hear is that there's a lack of access to capital, technical assistance, and networks. 
And so in many of the cities where JP Morgan Chase has worked in, we've launched these entrepreneurs of color funds. So just approved a planning grant to the debt to explore if, uh, if Dallas is poised and ready to launch an entrepreneurs of color fund. When the city of Dallas launched the million dollar continuity fund in the middle of COVID, at the time, 40% of the applications were incomplete. So my question is, do we really need more capital? Because it doesn't, it doesn't appear that, I'm making a broad statement, that's what CDFIs typically support, more flexible capital. Hopefully, half the bankability can come to JP Morgan Chase, Black and Latinx, not poised and ready for additional capital. We need to do we, what we're, we're not going to get money into the hands. We're only doing three people. Not you all, it's just, the, it's just the scope of the neighborhood. So, for example, if you go in South Dallas, Fairport, Dr. Flowers, I'm not sure if this is true, when I was a banker back in the day, is that you got established business, established businesses there. So you're maybe not looking to go in there and expand and need a purchase acquisition loan to get new equipment in your dental practice. So you may not necessarily be ready for that. So that scope and area, as you indicated, may be too small. Can't you explain it to the Southern part? So is it the narrative that nobody's really, there's not the market for new loans going into that market? I'm, I'm just trying to get the landscape of what is really needed so that more small businesses can get access to capital. Yeah, no, I just wanted to add some, my sorry, I just want to add some inflation. Um, petty loans are not, petty loan companies are not going out of business. They they fund people, individuals, and small business to the tunes of numbers I don't know. But what I've learned from entrepreneurs and most recently is last night is that the underwriting process, uh, the, the things that you take into account. So if it's the credibility, you know, well, can your rent income, you know, your, your rent payments count as part of your credit? Can some of these alternative things count as part of that? And so for the people who have well, a side hustle, side hustle is actually their real small business. You know, they're being funded in alternative ways. And so I would uh, encourage uh, exploration is what do those subcultures of finance look like? Mm. And then and adapt some things to what they're doing for just, just real quick, you know, I see this a lot in the southern sector, and I equate it to dropping off the turkey on Thanksgiving and then leaving. Mm. It's right, you're, you're meeting a need, a resource, without teaching the person how to fish. And I think that's been said. I think the issue is that we always put resources before readiness, right? And that's not the appropriate process versus education. You have to educate people, right? And then you have to prepare them, and then you have to invest in them. That is the process that brings real change to the southern sector. So I think as it relates to small businesses, specifically in West Dallas, people are asking, what is the EIM? So having access to a business line does them no good if they don't know what an EIM is. And so we kind of have to, you know, I think investment philanthropy has to change. Yes, provide the resources. You can never run short of resources, but you also have to provide capacity for them or that technical expert. I see one of the board members for Bills of Hope. I'm just going to throw out uh, the News Foundation. One of the biggest changes for Builders of Hope, how we're able to just launch, is because they provided the resource, uh, a PRI loan, and a capacity building grant. So the two go hand in hand. And when we think about investing dollars in the southern sector, we have to 
have an honest conversation with what is the what is the level of understanding how to use these resources in an effective way to bring the impact that we want. Okay, I want to make sure we have, so first of all, we have seven minutes, so we go into We're the next one. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? We still have some cookies left. Yeah. That was made. So, uh, um, so we have about seven minutes till we uh, have to stop for now. I do want to sort of put in a plug here. Anyone who reflects on this conversation and would like to share something in any way, please just send it to any of us, Felicia, Celestia, me. Uh, it can become part of this uh, kind of written record of what we're learning from all this. Um, uh, remember that we're, all, we're, talk we're, of course, talking about these programs to connect entrepreneurs with loans. We're also talking about the programs run by Dallas College and TREC to connect people with essentially learning opportunities, like learning, training, capacity building opportunities. So could I ask anyone who's thought about it a little bit to reflect on this? The, the, I, mean, I think Dr. Flowers spoke to it. The seven classes can be under some circumstances, sort of not what people are looking for exactly. But um, what, what have we learned about how to connect people when, when Dallas College is in the process of remaking itself to uh, address these needs? Chris? So, you know, looking at how we do our, our courses now, um, it can be challenging. There's a lot of qualifications that you have to meet. There's a lot of aspects that you have to reach. Um, and so we had to get to a point where we kind of created our own little um new way of doing programming and and it really took us a while to get there and it had several you know several attempts and those attempts you know weren't always successful um and so when we put our our boot camp together and the team really worked hard in listening and making sure that we were putting a program that really would create that outreach opportunity and educate the small businesses so that they can grow. We actually had this customized boot camp, and the boot camp was set in a time period, but it also had the advising to where it could advise individuals at the time period of day and how they needed it to be delivered. And all that was done virtually. We didn't expect that kind of result, but the result did happen. And now it's taking us even deeper into, okay, how do we make that happen both virtually and face-to-face? -face? So if you need the face-to-face -face option, how are we creating you know, our courses now? And how do we maneuver that while also looking at you know, how we're communicating to the academic side so they too can make adjustments. So Kristen's describing, I think, a pretty enormous effort by Dallas College to supply something that hopefully can be valuable. How about the demand side? Are you all seeing demand for kinds of kinds of learning opportunities that you know Dallas College, maybe more than any other institution, is in a position to provide? Is, is the demand there? Is there something standing in the way of connecting that uh, that demand and, the, and that that product, that opportunity? As it relates to workforce development, um, uh, background-friendly uh, uh, opportunities, just awareness of what a background-friendly opportunity is. So that's something that I did see in the community. As it relates to uh, transportation proximity, 
proximity does matter in the space of this time, unrelated, but related, so to speak. We, had, we partnered with Goodwill uh, who came too. And so we had individuals who would come too. So, you know, in, in terms of play space, you know, I think opportunities to introduce people to I think that would be an opportunity moving forward into maybe this introduction into that community and then pull that person to mm -hmm. the actual location itself mm -hmm. as it relates to the, the homeless or unsheltered or working unsheltered where I've seen people, you know, put on work clothes, you know, and then, you know, hop on the bus. I've seen that. In terms of proximity, this is a provocative idea. But if the encampment could be closer to where the education is, the location. So as not you're not having to you know deal with whether it's your car being picked up because Dallas services have come and cleaned up the, the, the encampment now all your things are gone you know but if there was some type of really intentional thinking about the homeless who do want to get the education who do want to work I'm not talking about all the modalities and, you know mental illness or anything that that could be but but those those are opportunities that I see could be created. Thank you, man. Two minute warning. Yes. One minute warning. One minute warning. And we have a comment also online. If the neighborhood businesses have been identified, why not utilize mentors to educate entrepreneurs? I have one comment on the well, a couple of comments on the business side. I think people of color are the most overeducated and undercapitalized in business. Mm -hmm. It's always what we don't know. While that's true often for beginning entrepreneurs. And I own several businesses myself. Um, it's not always true for those of us that are established. And so I think splitting between those who are new and those who are experienced and how things are offered, um, whether that's lending or education. So someone like me might be thinking about scaling. How do I hire our next five people where somebody starting out is, do I have my EIN? Do I have the CPA? Have I spoken with a small business attorney? Those are very different concerns in those two groups. And then especially for people starting out, one having the fear of losing equity in their business when you talk about loans or being saddled with debt when they're just starting. So maybe breaking it down between grants and loans. Mm -hmm. So there's a startup grant when you get ready to help you get your LLC paid for, to get your nonprofit paperwork in place, to cover your first month of expenses. And then once you're settled, to have access to loans once you're bringing in income and you're revenue generating at that point. Um, and then the other thing, I think Kristen brought this up, is virtual training. Like, can you access this while you're working in between clients on your lunch break without having to get up and leave your office or your place of work to go and access that information and those resources? So really thinking about it from the business owner's perspective, and Dr. Phillips, Dr. Flowers pointed this out earlier, where he said, you're working, like, not even nine to five. It's only like seven to 12 when you're just getting started. You don't have three hours to leave your business and go to a training and the Dallas traffic is two extra hours. So thinking about being able to access the resources in a way that makes sense um, for people that are really seeking the expertise and the access to capital, capital, excuse me, capital, but making it accessible to them where they can really utilize what's available um, and be willing to participate. And the final thing is we've been in COVID. So a lot of business owners who are still here their credit may not look the same as it did in February of 2020. So taking into consideration all they've had to do to stay in business, to cover payroll, to cover expenses, to still perform on projects, 
their credit may not look like the 750 you were before. So thinking about that when you have your evaluation criteria, and I know we're under the third dive of that, but keeping that in mind when you think about who really can access the funds, not just apply, but who can really put in an application and gain access towards the bank. Thank you so much for that. Um, well, I want to suggest it, it, I have an ultimate boss who's very, very big on ending things on time, and I tilt my doubt if I, uh, if I don't do it. Uh, so um, I, I would suggest to, to the group that we have, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about some of the obstacles that stand in the way of this important work, but we also have learned a lot about a lot of efforts around the table to, uh, uh, we encounter an obstacle and we don't uh, step back and give up. We figure out how to adapt to it and work our way around it or over it, and all that work is underway. Um, my understanding, uh, Michelle, is that uh, J.P. Morgan really directs in the Pro Neighborhoods program that we do events, of some, whether whether it's to get everybody talking or bring information to the community. And uh, I, I hope you think, and I hope everyone thinks that we have we've done that. No, I, I, I may just say, I just think this is incredible. I mean, I don't think there are enough tables like this. I know that the Real Estate Council goes into neighborhoods and talks to community. I don't know how often this table will probably get together. I mean, you know, we're willing to probably fund some capacity building. I mean, y'all have not met the land. She leads our uh, second one of our another market heads for Dallas Fort Worth MLT. Maybe we can find a table like this. I just think this conversation, Carla, and you have been amazing. Uh, this is just great. And Michelle Columbus agreed to give us five additional minutes because I think it's important for for people in here to know that things are happening. Yeah. And what's yes. and what's going on yes. right now. Yes. Yeah, so uh, so. And you, you want to say? No, I'm good. Yeah. Thank you very much for the nice words and. Uh, so, um, Alicia and Linda, yes, um, and I'll make it quick and then I'll hand it off to Linda. Don't get me in trouble with W. So, <laughs> so, what I wanted to say because of this investment from JP Morgan Chase is giving each of the organizations an opportunity to do things in a different way. And so, COVID has slowed that down, but we are doing things in a different way. Uh, in terms of trek community investors, we're deploying a capital for affordable housing, affordable workforce housing, as well as minor home repair uh, programs. We are creating a community land trust backbone organization. So the costs for that can be spread out across organizations and no organization will be cost burdened with trying to create a community land trust. Uh, we're working on tax relief for, uh, for these communities. Dallas College, Kristen needs to talk a little bit more and I, I, I please ask you to talk to her about this, this boot camp. It's not a typical boot camp program. It's meeting entrepreneurs where they are so they can design a schedule or come up with classes that they need for that particular uh, entrepreneur. That's something new that they try and that's and it's working. Uh, I'll also say that the Small Business and Corporate Growth Lab at Bill J. Priest, that's going to open up shortly. I want you to hold Dallas College's feet to the fire to make sure that that building that's funded by J.P. Morgan Chase in part is accessible to residents. Also, uh, Dallas College has a mobile classroom. We're going to bring that to one of the neighborhoods. I promise you we'll bring that to, to one of the neighborhoods. And finally, I just want to mention that Lift Fund. Lift Fund has a flexible loan capital program. I will tell you, because we're doing things differently, Michelle, it's much more labor intensive and much more time intensive to work with these entrepreneurs. But you've given the funds to do that, and we're doing that. So those are the things I wanted to mention. Also, want to put this in your ear and some of the funders in here. We need guaranteed programs for loan programs. Taking a lot more risk when you have guaranteed programs. 
And so with that, I wanna hand it off to Linda to close us out. Thank you, Felicia. And uh, thank you to all of you who participated both in person and virtually. Uh, Councilmember Mendelson, thank you for your always continuous support of really trying to do the best thing for this entire city of Dallas. I appreciate your participation. And David and Heather, thank you for representing the city of Dallas um, here. I think it's essential. I think the point made is the city is a huge partner in, in changing our communities. And uh, your investment and your time and your creativity and innovation is really, really important to all of us. Uh, when Michelle came to us four years ago, maybe five, and said, we have this program called Fro Neighborhoods and we want you to do something like this in Dallas. And oh, by the way, you know, Pro Neighborhoods in other cities is just one neighborhood. And she said, we can do better. Dallas is better than that. Let's do three. Um, thank you for that. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, sleepless nights from all of our parts for, from that challenge, but, but we do appreciate your support and investment uh, in these communities. It really means an awful lot to us. Um, we've learned so much over the course of the last three years specifically, but we learn every single day and we've learned a lot today. And I think this was a great table to be sitting at. I have not heard a great conversation like this with so many different partners. And I think we could go on for a lot longer. And I know there's a lot of unsaid words here and I hope that you will make sure that you share those words with us because it's really important. Uh, Colum, the credibility that you bring to yes. our work is really huge. Um, having the Bush Institute and you personally engaged as you are in all things policy driven for the city of Dallas is very, very important. And I love the fact that you're bringing students along in this process because they need to understand the challenges these communities face. Um, I can't, I could go around the room, thank each and every single one of you for being here and for the work and the commitment that you've made personally to your neighborhoods. Uh, but it, it would take me all day to tell you how I feel about each one of you because this is meaningful work, hard work, but we're not leaving. And we will continue to support you however we can to make sure that we are doing the best thing we can for every person that lives in these communities. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate your candor. Uh, we need honest conversations for us to be able to push these things forward. And so I look forward to many more of these and thank you again for being here. I really appreciate all of you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for today's show. I'd like to thank Cullum Clark, the Bush Institute, and everyone that attended our roundtable discussion about the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development. You can learn more about the DCED and read our year two white paper over at trekcommunityinvestors.org. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>